Welcome to today's podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Anthony Holly holds fellowships in the College of Emergency and Intensive Care Medicine and is a commander in the Royal Australian Navy Reserve. His achievements in teaching, research, military service and clinical practice are as long as they are impressive. And among them, he has an interest in the endpoints of trauma resuscitation, the microcirculation and blood substitutes. And I've asked him to join me today to review the important issue of massive transfusion. Welcome, Anthony. Hi there, Todd. Thanks very much for having me. Anthony, I was wondering if I could start just with the, the concept of massive transfusion. How do we define it, and is it important to be able to define it accurately? Absolutely, Todd. Look, I think uh, there's a host of classical definitions. I think um, most would be familiar with the definition that uh, says greater than 10 units transfused in a 24-hour period or greater than an uh, entire blood volume in a 24-hour period. The latter is a little bit more useful insofar as it... Um, takes into account the size of the patient. Both of these definitions, however, have uh, what one might say significant shortfalls insofar as 24 hours down the track you find out that you've had a massive blood transfusion, it's probably a little bit late. So in today's kind of terms and down in the emergency room or in the intensive care, people are more and more turning to a definition that looks at something, for example, uh, like four units of blood transfused in a one-hour period or greater than 150 mil blood loss per hour. Now, there's a bit of a variation there, um, but the trend is to try to pick uh, the need for a massive transfusion early rather than later so that one can be a, a ahead of oneself in terms of the management. Presumably it's important to identify it so that you can implement something such as a, a, the activation of a massive transfusion protocol, is that correct? Absolutely. I think uh, you know that the concept of a massive transfusion protocol is, has gained ground significantly in the last uh, couple of years and, and the concept really relies on, on recognising that you have a massive transfusion system and then setting in place uh, a system such that all of the stakeholders and, and major players are aware of the situation and indeed able to provide appropriate products in appropriate ratios at an appropriate time. And all of this ties in very nicely with the concept of damage control resuscitation, uh, which in essence says that, uh, you know, resuscitation and provision of blood products need to be timely and appropriate. Are there longer-term um, complications of massive transfusion that we should know about, particularly as they relate to the ICU? Yeah, I think, I think Todd, we probably under-recognise uh, those complications to some degree. And I think when one thinks about massive transfusion, it's probably easiest to quite simply think of the standard complications that might uh, occur with a, with, a, with a blood transfusion, but only by virtue of the fact that you're now giving 10 units in 24 hours you've presumably multiplied that risk substantially. And, and I always like to think of it rather simplistically as, as those complications pertaining to, I guess, uh, physical complications. The potential to uh, volume overload patients is, is, is obviously significant. If due care is not taken to maintain uh, normothermia, uh, these patients can very rapidly become hypothermic and set in train a whole new set of consequences with respect uh, to other groups of complications that I think about are the, are the biochemical complications and particularly um, uh, in, in the context of massive transfusion, uh, one has to be uh, 
professionals such as Harper Kalina. Then, then again, with massive transfusion, if we consider the complications uh, along biological lines, um, obviously there's hemolysis, and, and while things like ADA incompatibility are very rare, this is the exact instance when it will happen, when there's confusion, um, uh, there's a lot going on. This is the exact time there's a potential for this kind of uh, catastrophe to happen. Um, and, and, of course, delayed hemolysis is something that we see and, and something that can be downtracked in the, in the intensive care. Always raised, and, and I guess we consent patients in a non-emergent situation for the risk of transmission of, of infection, but bacterial infection, which which is is higher with with platelets, um, but, but certainly does exist with the other products, and, and then of course viral transmission, which fortunately in the uh, Australian setting is, is is very low because of the nature of our donor pool, and indeed uh, the screening that's done, which includes both nucleic acid. transfusion is associated with a worse course in, in intensive care as well, isn't it? Is there a relationship that is causative or is this just an association, do you think? If I was going to start a massive transfusion policy, because it certainly appears that, that that's uh, a very important part of, uh, of our clinical practice now, where would you start? And I guess the major thing that I'd like to talk about is what products should I give um, and what ratio and, and in what order? Yeah, so I think, I, th I think that is a big issue. I think um, the establishment of a massive transfusion um, protocol is, is something that is, is no doubt complex. And, and requires all the stakeholders to be involved. At the outset, I should say in our hospital, um, Dr. Catherine Hearn, an emergency physician downstairs, has been uh, very instrumental in developing and following uh, the development of a um, massive transfusion protocol within our institution and, and looking at the figures. 
frankly, the problem is the numbers, even in a big hospital like Royal Brisbane, are reasonably small. And we would be lucky if we, uh, you know, see 30 massive transfusions uh, in a year. So, so therein lies the difficulty. But, but to answer your question, what, what's required is really to involve all the stakeholders, and that, quite frankly, is pathology, haematology, the emergency physicians, the intensive care physicians, and uh, the surgeons and anaesthetic folk. Uh, and it's about establishing a system that recognises in the first instances what trigger factor should be called upon to, um, to initiate a massive transfusion because it's a costly exercise and you're dealing with a valuable product that can't, um, you know, be, be misused and abused. So one needs an appropriate trigger um, to identify the patient that is going to subsequently go on and require that, that kind of support. And in this regard, uh, people have, have used triggers such as four, you know, after four units of blood or after six units of blood, uh, the transfusion protocol should be set in place. And setting the transfusion, um, massive transfusion protocol in place um, involves uh, notifying the laboratory, the laboratory staff, such that they can start to send down uh, pre-packed, uh, appropriately um, uh, tested uh, blood products for the, for the patient. So it involves um, appropriate ratios, which might, in the first phase, include, for example, four units of red cells and four units of, of FFP, and the next round start including platelets. Now, the exact ratio that, that one uses, I guess, is institution-specific, and indeed how one chooses to follow um, the, the literature in, in, in this regard. Additional to this talk, uh, one should be supplying cryoprecipitate um, and also pointing out in the massive transfusion protocol that simple things like pH and temperature need to be normalised as well as considering the use of, of uh, agents such as tranexamic um, acid. Now, your second part of your question was really which ratios to use. And this is quite an, an, ex, quite an exciting uh, area of practice at the moment. And again, uh, there have been several uh, very significant um, publications coming out of the civilian environment as well as out of the military environment. Sadly, they're all retrospective. And, and what they've done is they've used regression models to try to uh, assess the benefit of various ratios uh, right through a one-to-one -one ratio, you know, ratios whereby maybe one unit of red cell, for every four units of red cells, one unit of FFP is given. And the trend with all of these studies, and most of them, you know, starting back as far back as 2005, Hope published a reasonably good study, uh, most have demonstrated that we seem to get better results with uh, more aggressive one-to-one -one relationships. But it, it is fair to say this does need to um, be measured up in a uh, in a formal um, randomised control trial. Borgman looked at uh, some 250-odd patients and was able to demonstrate a significant survival benefit, uh, 80% versus, I think, 35% for those that had a lower ratio. Um, Holcomb, the military surgeon out of the United States of America, has done a lot of work in, in this regard and also did a, a retrospective study on, I think, some 470 patients and, again, was able to demonstrate a 6-hour, 24-hour, 30-day uh, 30 survival uh, 
asthma. But it remains controversial and it's not yet uh, proven and I, th- and I think uh, it won't be long until we see a study in this area. You mentioned a number of key factors there, including temperature control, uh, control of acid, um, acid load and also coagulopathy. What's our current understanding of this um, so-called lethal triad? So I think um, I think this was recognised as far back as you know the the late 1960s that that hypothermia, acidemia, and and dilution uh, are detrimental to um, to the bleeding patient, um, and and I think that stands uh, you know there's no doubt that stands in its current state that any acute care or critical care physician needs to be cautiously watching patient temperature, pH, uh, and the degree of dilution. Of interest, however, Todd, is that of recent times, and particularly brought up by a guy called um, uh, Brohe, um, has looked at exactly what the, the emphasis or the consequences of these things are. And, and I guess taking dilution, first of all, what is interesting is that Nobody would argue that if you dilute patients, and, and certainly once you give them more than three litres of crystalloid, the German study showed that uh, more than three litres of crystalloid result in a, in, in a coagulation defect in more than 50% of patients. But what is interesting is that a good number of patients arriving at, at hospital following trauma, and this might be as high as 20 25%, have a coagulopathy already in place. Um, indicating that there's some other mechanism uh, at foot, you know, foot that that's responsible outside of dilution, and and similarly hypothermia. No one would argue that that it's important to keep patients warm, and that at lower temperatures, uh, coagulation proteins are, are less functional. It is important to recognise that these kind of changes only occur at temperatures in the order of sort of 33, uh, 32 degrees, and likewise. Likewise, with, with acidemia, the pH um, really needs to be depressed somewhere around about 7.2 to start to result in a significant uh, and, and meaningful defect in coagulation for, for human subjects. And animal studies, swine models have shown that, you know, you know there's a decrement at about 7.1, a pH of, of 7.1. So, yes, um, acidemia, hypothermia, and dilution are all important, and they constitute but more and more we're recognising that something else is afoot. And, and that may likely or is likely a hyperperfusion insult to the endothelium, um, which occurs in, in the context of a shock patient. And, and some modelling and some work in this area suggested that, that um, one of the factors that may be responsible for this is, is as the endothelium uh, is is hyperperfused or exposed to injury, it uh, releases thrombomodulin, and and that thrombomodulin complexes with with thrombin, and uh, and clearly that leaves less thrombin available to uh, be involved in in coagulation. But also interestingly, the the combination or the, the that union of thrombomodulin and thrombin results in activation of activated protein T and subsequent inhibition of uh, factors 5 and 8, which, which again is, is, is interesting. And further, 
there's always a lot of conjecture about what endpoints we should use um, in a massive transfusion policy like this. Um, what what are the triggers for for various blood products and so on? Is it is it possible with our current uh, laboratory setups? Um, you know, there's obviously a delay before a lot of the results of these coagulation uh, factors are, are returned to us in clinical practice. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think Todd, that's a, that's a problem we, uh, we we all encounter. And I think the first thing I'd say to that is empiric management at the moment seems to be a useful strategy whereby we empirically replace in higher ratios than we did previously. Two is, is simple things like sending um, the current tests that are available to us, iron iron and uh, APTT, and then looking at those results early because that, you know, we all argue that it takes a half an hour plus to get those results. But in practice, a lot of people are even slow to look at those results. So I, I think sending those things um, early on and frequently and, and and then chasing up aggressively on the results, that still leaves you in the position where you're retrospectively acting on, if you like, historical information. Now, with the new point-of-care testing of INR and, and APTT, that makes things a little bit easier, but it's, it's probably not the whole story because INR and APTT test the plasma with, without the cells, and we, and we, we recognise that the cells are important players in the coagulation pathway. So there's quite a strong body of evidence to suggest maybe we're measuring the, the wrong things, and that's where I think thromboelastography um, uh, is coming into its own. And, and to be honest, I've used it in cardiac surgery and, and liver transplantation for a very long time. Uh, we've just been a little bit slow possibly to adopt um, TIG and Rotem uh, technology. Uh, in dealing with with trauma, and this might be a little bit more akin to what's happening in Viva, in that it looks at um, you know strength of clot formation, uh, rate of clot formation, the degree of fibrinolysis, and and then could maybe direct individual um, uh, product supplementation based on the on on the current situation as as evidenced by the uh, thromboelastography, but. We're not using that in our institution at the moment. There's a little bit of interest in, in terms of setting up some studies, but, but we're not using that at the minute. Can I turn now to adjunctive therapy? Tranexamic acid has obviously made a big splash in the last year or so uh, with the release of the CRASH-2 trial. Um, is there a role for, for that and other factors such as prothrombinex, factor 7A and so on? Yes, I think, uh, you know, looking at the, the tranexamic acid trial, that, that was, a, as you know, a very interesting trial, looked at the effects of tranexamic acid on death and vascular occlusion events and, and, and blood transfusion in trauma patients with significant hemorrhage. Now, uh, that, that I think, uh, initially, uh, yeah, well, I'd say it remains exciting um, in that it's a reasonably inexpensive drug. The study, as you know, was massive. It was a, it was a prospective uh, double-blind double-blind trial uh, that involved, you know, sort of close to 300 hospitals uh, right across the, the globe and uh, 20,000 odd patients. Now that demonstrated a 1.5% mortality reduction. We have adopted its use in in our hospital and, and within our intensive care unit. There are some caveats that need to be acknowledged and that, that, that the, you know, the increase in or decrease in bleeding and the increase in survival uh, over that, those massive numbers were reasonably small. It was in the order of sort of 1.5% um, decrease uh, in death uh, across the board. 
was only generated, and uh, you know, patients that that were going to benefit from tranexamic acid are those that get it within three three hours. There is a, it is fair to say, though, Todd, that the study, um, I don't think we'll see another study as large as that dealing with this problem, but it was fair to say that for many of the patients, entrance criteria were reasonably uh, reasonably soft and, uh, and and probably more than 70% of patients had a systolic blood pressure greater than 90, with only uh, you know 15% of patients having uh, low blood pressure or, or significant hemodynamic instability. Importantly, there was no reduction in blood transfusion observed. And, and I guess the telling figure is that the median number of red cells transfused in both groups was reasonably small at, at three. So, so I think those are the cautions. But, but you know, for a cheap drug that didn't seem to have any uh, adverse effects, I think given within three hours it should be used uh, and, uh, until uh, other information comes to light to suggest otherwise. With respect to factor seven, um, I think you know many of us swore by factor seven uh, several years ago, but I think the recent literature has really um, kind of squashed that somewhat. Uh, the original work by Ken Buffard in, in, in South Africa uh, with 300 odd trauma patients suggested that in blunt trauma there was a uh, well, not suggested there was a significant uh, reduction in, in number of units. Red cells transfused over 48 hours, and in penetrating trauma, there was a trend towards a significant reduction, uh, and, and, that, and that set us uh, all off looking at uh, the use of activated factor seven, which which needed to be in under ideal conditions. Patients needed to have the right number of platelets; they needed not to be acidotic and not to be hypothermic, and uh, it seemed that it, it, it was beneficial. But I think since Buffer's study, there's been several other studies, you know, Hauser did a study in, in 2010 and looked at blunt and penetrating trauma and and he was able to demonstrate no mortality uh, difference, although he did demonstrate a slight decrease in product use. Uh, Wade, uh, again in the military context, looked at uh, a published in Journal of Trauma in 2010 and uh, they had a group of about 2,000 odd patients and was not able to demonstrate um, any significant mortality um, difference. So most of us at that point may have continued to use factor seven saying, well, there might be a subset of patients who benefit, but it was really uh, the New England Journal article in 2010 by Levy et al. that uh, said, you know, looked at off-label use of recombinant activated factor seven, safe or not safe, and, and that was very worrying in that it demonstrated an increase in uh, thromboembolic events uh, in in the arterial subgroup, such that that it suggested that there was an increased risk of both strokes and coronary events. So we've now got a product uh, that used off-label. That if used off-label, doesn't seem to confer benefit, and and uh, that also seems to demonstrate a potential to harm. So I think it makes it very very difficult. To, uh, to use in that setting, to be quite honest. The next comment was, was prothrombinex. I think uh, you, you asked what, what the source sense was. It's been shown to, to re- prothrombinex uh, or prothrombin complex concentrate has been shown to reduce blood, blood product requirements in surgical patients. 
but it's currently not recommended or indeed licensed for use in, in, in trauma. Uh, and I guess it's because of, again, because of the risk of, of thromboembolic events. I'm certainly aware of a number of tiny or small studies that are going on looking at uh, pre-hospital use of, of uh, prothrombinex uh, as, a, as a possible uh, agent to, um, to control uh, bleeding in, in the pre-hospital environment. But I think it's something that we'll watch with interest. And at the moment, we're not using it uh, either empirically or as a matter of standard of, of care. I guess the, the final aspect of all of this is um, if blood is so difficult to come by in our current environment, are there any substitutes? And it's something that you've looked at uh, fairly extensively, I understand, blood substitutes and also the role of frozen blood. Yeah, Todd, look, thank you for asking that. Um, it, it is interesting. I mean, it is a rare, it is a rare resource or a rare commodity. Uh, we know that, uh, you know, even from the advertising campaigns, that one in three Australians requires blood at some point, and, and one in ten of us donates blood. So, therein is, is automatically a, a, an equation that uh, sets us up for shortage. Certainly, the ideal blood substitute, uh, you know, would, would be a synthetic substitute where a hemoglobin. Uh, stroma-free hemoglobin or a hemoglobin, uh, you know, cell-free cell hemoglobin would be a, a wonderful uh, um, resource or capability because, you know, that, that would provide a product that didn't need uh, special storage conditions, that didn't need uh, cross-matching. And, and so there's been an enormous amount of work done in this area. Um, and I guess it was the JAMA meta-analysis in 2008 that sort of told us that after three decades of work, we're still no further ahead, despite a great variety of, of hemoglobin products. You know, uh, hemoglobin put in bovine hemoglobin, genetically engineered hemoglobin, stroma-free hemoglobin, tetrameric structures of hemoglobin to protect the kidneys, a whole range of different uh, biological approaches to producing a substance that would be safe. And uh, the 2008 meta-analysis um, which involved kind of 70, looked at 70 studies that had, had, had uh, taken place from 1980 through to, to 2008, and, and I think 16 or 17 of those studies were deemed suitable for meta-analysis. And the upshot of all of that, Todd, was that um, the myocardial risk was, was, uh, was increased threefold in those patients. Risk of myocardial infarction was, was increased threefold in patients receiving uh, hemoglobin substitute uh, and and or synthetic blood substitutes, and the mortality was increased by a third. So there is still some work going on, uh, looking at at various compounds, and, and certainly I'm aware that uh, recently the Alfred transfused a, a Jehovah's Witness with with a product that they ordered in specifically. But the but the current evidence and the current products would suggest that we've got a bit of a way yet to go to uh, uh, ensure the safety and, and benefit of, of those agents. So uh, that that's then leads me to your second point, was that of um, frozen products. Now, I was fortunate to be uh, sent by the military uh, in 2010 uh, to, to work with the Dutch and their military blood bank. Now, the Dutch had... Uh, have really uh, mastered the technology worked on by a guy called Valeri uh, from the United States Navy. And in essence, um, they've looked at both platelets and red cells, which
large supply of blood products uh, so that um, in in 10 years' time for red cells or, or, or two years' time for platelets, you can thaw these, these products and use them. Now, the technology is reasonably far advanced. In fact, red blood cells, even, even the uh, Australian Red Cross Blood Service has been deep-freezing red cells for a long time, you know, deep-freezing rare phenotypes, but not on a mass scale. Platelets haven't uh, been done outside of the research uh, environment within Australia, but certainly, uh, as I say, the Dutch have used them. Now, the downside of these products is that clearly they need cryopreservative agents that protect the cells while they're frozen, and these agents need to be washed out or need to be non-toxic uh, when it comes to transfusing the product. In the case of platelets, um, dimethyl sulfoxide is used as a preservative, and, and in big doses that can be toxic. Uh, and so um, there's been a lot of work that's gone around that. Having said that, the Dutch have successfully transfused uh, 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 literally hundreds of units of these platelets without consequence or side effect. With respect to the red cells, they they're by and large um, preserved with glycerol, and that glycerol needs to be washed off uh, when the when the red cells are thawed, and that's a little bit of a time-consuming process, probably up as, as much as sort of 90 to 100 minutes per unit, and and indeed it subjects the cell to um, uh, you know a reasonable um, de degree of, of of potential injury. But having said that, again they effectively transfuse thousands of red cell, deep frozen red cell units, again, predominantly in Afghanistan, and, and have not encountered any problems and have seen substantial increases in patient hemoglobin. So it is a promising technology uh, for remote uh, areas and indeed for, for the military context or humanitarian assistance uh, or disaster situations. We've obviously made uh, plenty of progress in recent times in this interesting area, but there's obviously a lot more work to be done. Thank you very much for uh, your time in helping us understand where we're at now. Well, thanks very much. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you, and, and, and thank you again. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not visit our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of critical care education resources. Our sites contain podcasts, video presentations and modules, searchable libraries and image databases, and much, much more. Critique can be found at www.crit-iq.com.au and critnurse at www.crit-nurse.com. Alternatively, Visit our podcast page on the iTunes site and give us a high five.